Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This is The Guardian. Right down the East Coast now, you've got state governments who are keen to work together to achieve this transition in the energy sector and obviously a federal government that's keen to see it happen. So I think the conditions are the best they have ever been for us to achieve that transition from coal-fired energy. Hello, lovely people of pods, and welcome to the show. You are with Catherine Murphy, and you are on Australian politics. And it's uh, delightful uh, that I am going to be joined in the in the podcast studio this week by Greg Combe, who many listeners will know uh, is a former trade union official, a former cabinet minister in the Rudd and Gillard governments, and uh, in his post-politics life is still politics adjacent. Surprise, surprise. Uh, <laughs> he's, he's very active, obviously, in the superannuation sector. He's currently chair of Industry Super Australia and he's also chair of IFM Investors. What is IFM Investors, Greg? Firstly, hi, Catherine. Thanks for having me on. Hello. IFM Investors is an investment management firm that was established by a large group of the industry superannuation funds about 25 years ago, and it manages now about $200 billion uh, Australian and uh, you know, is a very large international investor now, particularly in infrastructure. And, uh, right. you know, it's it's objective because it's owned for the, by the profit-to-member uh, industry super funds is basically to return the best returns that it can to members' accounts. Hmm. Okay. I'm just conscious because uh, we get we have a lot of young people <laughs> listening to the pod and not all young people are intimately focused on their superannuation balances. So I'm just sort of explaining the general context in which you, you operate. Now, Greg, the reason I've invited you on the show is that there's some quite interesting nascent developments at this end, at the Canberra end, with the new government signalling in a few different cases uh, that they're wanting ways to unlock Australia's massive superannuation pool to invest in things the country needs, that there's this great national asset sitting there and we have many unmet needs in a whole bunch of areas and and what I think is being worked through at the moment is how and in what capacity there might be an alignment of interests between the superannuation sector and the government of the day. And there has been 
talk around budget time of a new accord, which given your background, I'm I'm interested to engage you on whether or not that language is in any way relevant. But before we step out to accords and that sort of styling, let's get to the substance. So why don't you step out the background of what's happening to listeners uh, who may have missed this entirely? Probably a little bit of context about the superannuation system would help first, Catherine. Currently, the pool of Australian workers' retirement savings is about $3.3 trillion, I should say, and the industry super funds that I broadly represent are about a third of that, about $1.1 trillion. And to give uh, some perspective, that's bigger than the market value of the Australian Stock Exchange, which currently sits around 2.3. So the super system, it's bigger than the stock exchange. And it's also bigger than the size of the Australian economy, which is currently around, that is annual GDP, around $2 trillion. So when you've got a savings system that's been built up actually over a pretty short period of time, 25 odd years of that scale, it's not surprising that a government would start to think, gee, we've got some important national priorities here. One of them is a deficit in social and affordable housing, for example, but there's also the investment needs to achieve the energy transition too and the decarbonisation of the economy in time. It's not surprising when you've got a big pool of savings like that, that a government would start to think, how can we work together with those superannuation funds to achieve national objectives and at the same time return the best and appropriate investment returns to workers' super accounts. And that's the context in which we're working. And on the kind of a social and affordable housing front, Australia's, you know, a fair way behind the way in which housing and particularly affordable housing is approached in other countries overseas. For example, about 4% of our housing stock you could probably classify as affordable and social housing um, which a very small amount, and yet we've got, on best estimates, about a shortfall of around 670,000 homes that are needed to address the demand that's there. So there is a big national issue. It needs to be addressed with very substantial investment. Governments are constrained by the level of debt you know, that's been inherited from both the GFC and more recently the pandemic, and we've got this big pool of retirement savings. And so Treasurer Jim Chalmers in particular has obviously kicked off a debate about how we bring these things together in some type of accord to see if we can crack the nut on this problem. Mm. And and this is basically what I want to get to in this conversation. Can we crack the nut on this problem? Uh, because obviously a government that is constrained by high debt and deficit uh, but uh, has a lot of ambition for what needs to be done in the country and also is under massive pressure from all kinds of sectors of the economy to deal with the capacity constraints that we've seen in the economy in recent times, right? 
obviously they're going to want to do things, but then from the point of view of a working person with a superannuation account used to seeing growth in their asset year on year, it's sort of it might be a bit terrifying really for an ordinary policyholder to think about a government sort of coming at that savings pool, uh, which brings us to your point, right? So how do we crack the nut? Because you've got an obligation to protect growth in individual super accounts. Yes. So how how do you get to that meeting of minds? You've raised really the central point in approaching this, and that is that the trustees of a superannuation fund responsible for looking after and investing the money of many, many millions of Australian workers, they have a very clear and specific obligation to only act in the best financial interests of the members of the super fund. You know, that is to drive the best possible returns, risk-adjusted returns for those members so that we can continue to build their individual retirement savings for when they do retire. And so that's a legal duty. And everyone's extremely conscious of it, but so is the government, of course. And so the government is engaging in consultation with the superannuation sector and and other important parts of the economy that we can come to um, to figure out how that obligation for superannuation fund trustees um, to deliver for their members can be matched up with meeting some important national priorities like the development of a you know very substantial amount of supply in affordable housing mm. and that's proven to be very difficult historically because you know in simple terms it's been there's a whole lot of barriers in in the way Australia's housing market is set up and the different levels of government and the opening up of land and planning approvals but fundamentally in the Australian context, it hasn't made investment sense for superannuation funds to be investing in affordable housing. And as a consequence, Mm. it's pretty minuscule allocation that they currently have to it. Yeah. So what's got to change in order to change that calculation? Like trying, I mean, obviously this dialogue's still in play, Greg. I'm not expecting you to come with a, you know, settled proposition. But again, we'll be speaking to a lot of people who just haven't thought about this, you know, because there's many, many things to think about in life. So in order for super funds to invest in the government's first priority, nominated priority, which is social affordable housing, what's got to change? Well, the super fund investors have got to um, achieve an appropriate risk-adjusted return, you know, that is a a level of investment return that's commensurate with the risk that's involved. That's our obligation, if you like. But there's lots of other elements of this. And that's why the federal government and Treasurer Jim Chalmers put together this accord. And and it's the composition of that that'll give a better insight into uh, the answer to your question. That accord is an agreement between all levels of government, um, the investment community, including the super funds, but the banks are, you know, around it as well. Um, but alongside that is the residential building and construction sector um, that particularly have an interest, of course, um, in building more homes and more affordable homes. And an objective has been set to try to build one million extra homes over the course of the next decade, but there's an immediate commitment to try to crack the nut to come back to the specifics, 
to um, deliver 40,000 affordable dwellings uh, in the nearer term. And we're looking over, you know, a sort of a five-year period to deliver that. To back that effort up, the government has committed $10 billion. Uh, that will be managed by the Future Fund and the earnings from that $10 billion will be deployed to try to support and encourage the private sector and the superannuation fund sector investment in those 40,000 affordable homes. I know that's mm -hmm. covering a bit of turf, but nonetheless, we're trying to pull together many, many things to overcome all of the barriers. Is it is it as, as simple as the government has sort of got to de-risk this proposition for the superannuation industry? And there's ways I can think about yeah. that you could do that. If you're the government, you could guarantee a an agreed rate of return yes. out of the investment. You know, you could sort of fill the air gap, right, between the revenue stream that the housing development might generate so that basically there's no risk for the super industry to kind of buy in. Is it, is it something along those lines or is it more complicated than that? I can't, of course, preempt where this man... No. It's not, <laughs> I'll, I'll come back to that if that's okay, but it, it's not just that, you know, the... In order for that to be even contemplated, the states and territories in particular that have a lot of control over land release and planning and the like, as part of this accord, they've agreed to expedite zoning, planning and land release, and they're going to commit some extra funding for projects as well. That's a really important component of it because you can talk about building lots of homes, but unless, you know, all of the opportunity is there, uh, in terms of available land for development, it doesn't really happen either. That's not just new development either. Uh, there's a real need to bring Australians, you know, closer to where they work. A lot of housing developments that, are, of course, are in the outer suburbs and new development areas where oftentimes it takes a long time for the transport infrastructure to catch up, people spending huge amounts of time to try to get to and from work, um, we've got to look to develop um, more medium density um, dwelling opportunities, you know, closer to where people work. So as an example of that, uh, one of the um, big super funds in Australia is working with the New South Wales government, I think, to develop, um, you know, more affordable housing opportunity near Westmead, near Westmead Hospital, where, mm -hmm. of course, a lot of mm -hmm. people are working. So those things have got to be brought together. Um, more specifically, in answer to your question, the $10 billion that will be invested and managed by the future fund, the earnings from that, as I um, understand the potential structure here, uh, will be used um, to support and attract the investment from private investors, but specifically superannuation funds in affordable housing. And um, mm -hmm. the conversation is about, okay, is that in equity? That is, you know, owning affordable homes? Yep. Or is it in debt? And it's more likely to be in debt um, so that um, essentially through a government agency, money is borrowed from superannuation funds and there's an appropriate risk-adjusted return. And that return mm -hmm. um, would be supported by the earnings from that $10 billion. That's, ah, that's, that's the nature of the conversation. Yeah, okay, that's interesting because I, I hadn't sort of grasped that. So you think it's more likely to be 
a lending vehicle than direct ownership of the assets, you well, think? Well, we're doing a step at a time because this is, you know, I mean, the government's to be congratulated. It's it's completely created a, a really important conversation here that's that everyone's committed to exploring and we're taking a step at a time. So with respect to the 40,000 affordable dwellings that I've mentioned, that's really the first step. We need to find the way to make that work. I think it's most likely to be through the provision of some kind of debt instrument, so effectively mm-hmm. super funds um, lending money uh, and achieving an appropriate level of return for uh, the money um, um, that. Well, it's like you like you you like becoming an investment bank. <laughs> well. Um, we I mean super funds are very big investors. I mean, if you the funds, oh, you, no, no, of of course. But I mean, I just in relation to this specific thing, of course, of yeah. course, super funds invest in all kinds of things all around the world. That's how we get. That's how our super balances grow. Um, but just yeah, it's just sort of interesting. I'm sort of trying to wrap my mind around how you structure this. So yes, anyway, well, yes, just forgive that burst of enthusiasm. A few people wrapping their minds around how to structure it. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't quite landed. But, but I'm, I'm confident that there'll be a landing on this, and it's it's really important that there is for the country, and um, most importantly for to start to address the demand for affordable housing that's really desperately needed in Australia. Um, but also, you know, I think it's fair to say that Superfund trustees. Now, really keen to make it work and are looking for different models that might work. And um, because, you know, we're an important part of the Australian landscape and we want mm. to contribute to address these issues whilst always um, delivering upon and respecting our, our duty to superannuation fund members in their best interest. And tell me a little, if you can, about how these ideas started to percolate, uh, because obviously the, at a conceptual level, this idea has been around for some time, but it wasn't massively foregrounded during the campaign as a, as a, as something that, uh, you know, would sort of manifest in quite the way that it has yeah. done on the other side of the election. So I'm curious about how this all came together. Well, it was really uh, Labor in opposition uh, that announced a policy uh, which included this $10 billion commitment for a, um, uh, you know, affordable housing future fund in in essence. It's the Australian Housing Australia Future Fund is the proper um, description of it. So Labor announced that policy while in opposition and they've moved quickly to implement it. Treasurer Jim Chalmers has taken an important leadership role, but you'd appreciate too that Prime Minister Anthony Albanese, he's been closely associated with this policy while opposition leader and um, is you know, very, very committed to it, having come from a um, social housing you know, upbringing himself and the Minister for Housing, um, Julie Collins, is also from a social housing when she was... Um, uh, kid as well. So, you know, Labor has a very deep commitment to trying to explore how we can dramatically um, expand the level of supply of affordable housing in Australia to address a really important 
um, social need. And so that's where it's come from. Having said that, mm. super funds for a very long period of time been thinking, how can we make this work anyway? Mm. You know, even IFM investors, the investment management company that I'm chair of, we've had a small social housing investment over the years, but it's very tiny, you know, in comparison to the amount of money that we manage. And most super funds would be in that position. Over the last 12 or 18 months in particular, quite a number of the large funds now have been thinking about this quite independently of, of government or public policy. But having said that, they're small efforts, they're difficult to make work, and they're particularly difficult without the active engagement of government at all levels that makes sure that the land release, the planning, the zoning, mm. you know, and other things that help unlock value. If, for example, you can do a housing development in proximity, for example, to a railway station and a retail shopping area, and you can do further, if you've got planning approvals to do further development of um, retail outlets, um, community facilities and the like, then you can drive a higher level of value that supports mm. an appropriate risk-adjusted return. One of the important um, things that's been tried and I think will grow um, further is a, a kind of a mixed level of development where there's you know, market-oriented um, housing um, mm -hmm. uh, for sale. There's some social housing in the development and there's some that you'd call affordable housing in the development and in the mixture of those uh, returns from both rent and sales, you derive a, a, an adequate investment return for the overall mm. development. And lots of people are trying lots of different things and I think we're going to find models that will work for the long term and in, increase housing supply. But one of the other constraints is that um, in Australia, um, most housing developments historically have been developed by developers, um, yep. you know, to sell um, in pretty short order following the construction period. So, um, you know, for people to have home ownership opportunities. And so the investment return is fairly short term for the developer. Overseas, um, there's a much higher proportion in a lot of large cities of what's called build to rent, so that the mm -hmm. developer and their investors take a much longer term view and they develop, you know, apartment blocks and the like um, with a long term view to renting um, the properties and structuring it in a way that that drives an appropriate long term um, investment return. That's a really very small part of our housing market in Australia and that's seen as one of the important things that we need to, I think, develop appropriately as well. That way housing mm -hmm. becomes what we, you know, um, in the lingo of, of the investment world, housing becomes um, an investable asset class, you know, mm -hmm. and, and that would mm -hmm. make a big difference, I think, if we're able to really boost that build-to-rent uh, component of the market. Mm -hmm. Okay. And uh, obviously, look, there's there's a big agenda here to bring together an accord-style partnership. 
in housing, but you did flag at the beginning, Greg, the energy transition uh, is going to be a major, major thing. Uh, The the new government is basically wanting to accelerate the build of transmission, high-voltage transmission architecture in order to bolt more renewables into the grid. That's the simplest way to describe that. Now, in terms of a frontier for the superannuation industry, is it easier do you think, energy than, than housing? Because housing, as you say, to some degree, we're sort of starting from ground zero in terms of the models that we're looking at here, right? As a frontier, does energy look easier or harder than housing? From an investment perspective, yes, it, it should be easier. Hmm. You can't, having said that, you know, a superannuation fund can't suddenly decide, oh, we're going to build high-voltage <laughs> transmission lines um, there. And stick a big sea bus sign on it or something. (laughs) Probably not. (laughs) There needs to be um, very strong government coordination with the private sector to mobilise the investment that's necessary. And, um, you know, that's well understood. Having said that, um, yes, the investment case without government um, support for the uh, returns that might be expected is is much easier to identify. And it's not just the energy sector that we're really talking about here either. It's, it's the industrial sector too, where there are high emissions facilities. Mm. A lot of investment's going to be required really to dramatically transform the Australian economy. And I think as your listeners are probably well familiar, Australia is a very emissions intensive economy. We've had um, an abundance of uh, fossil fuels um, to power our economy for a, a very long time. One of the most emissions-intensive, you know, advanced economies in the world as a consequence. So the transition challenge to decarbonise is really a difficult one and it will require a large amount of investment. That If this is the next issue on the agenda, if you like, for the mm. uh, Treasurer's Investor Roundtable, um, I'm a member of that, that group and uh, the Treasurer convened a meeting about a week ago where we talked about the affordable housing issues. Um, the next meeting, I think, in 2023, or at least some meeting sometime in the not-too-distant future, will be to discuss the decarbonisation of the economy and the energy transition and how governments and investors can work together to bring that about. But it's a it's a big challenge, but lots of investment yeah. opportunity. The other just brief note um, is that um, many of the superannuation funds are already pretty significant investors in renewables and in electricity transmission and distribution. So we know the area pretty well as also. What do you think about gold plating, though, and that whole the return of that conversation? Because uh, obviously the, the big trend in the Australian energy sector has been for people to generate power on their rooftops, right, through their solar panels, that whole big grid architecture that we're familiar with. Now we're talking about all this massive transmission infrastructure again. Do you think there are risks of gold plating in the system? Well, on the issue of gold plating, of course, that's been a concern um, about investment in the transmission and distribution network in the past. Obviously, I think in this energy transition, um, governments and regulators uh, will have a very keen interest and a very keen focus 
on this actually delivering, um, you know, if not reductions in electricity prices because renewables are cheaper, um, then certainly to moderate the impact of additional investment on the network um, so that consumer prices, you know, are not rising in any unreasonable way. At the same time, if private investors are involved, like super funds, we've got to earn an appropriate return. But in monopolistic infrastructure, like a transmission line, they're regulated assets and the regulators effectively determine the investment return that an investor can achieve. And, you know, IFM investors, again, that I'm a chair of, um, we're a large investor in Ausgrid, which is an electricity distributor in New South Wales. And I can assure you, from our point of view, the regulators do their job. And that's um, what will continue to be important to protect people, consumers of electricity in the future as we're going through this transition. And I've no doubt that there'll be a lot of attention to that so that we don't you know, end up in a position where there's some legitimate argument that there's been gold plating, which for one, people wondering whether we're actually putting gold in transmission <laughs> lines. No, we're not. <laughs> what, what that's about is... is um, firstly, perhaps over-investing in the network and secondly, earning, you know, a, a return that's not commensurate with the societal requirements, if you like. Yeah. And so, I mean, in simple terms, you're saying because the assets are regulated, there's a limit on how much extra charge there can be flowing through to power bills associated with this super-duper transmission infrastructure. Yeah, and, and regulators need to be very mindful of that. I mean, there's been valid criticisms about all of this historically, I think, you know, guaranteed rates of return, et cetera, that, that observers have criticised. Uh, however, you know, the regulators are pretty capable in this area, as they should be, and, and I'm sure they'll be very mindful as we go down this path. Conceptually, does the super industry need in order to go deeper? And what do you think about those arguments that are that will inevitably come up either through the form of nimbyism or, uh, or you know, we're we're just investing too heavily in this infrastructure yeah. when the whole structure of the energy market is now distributed, you know, in terms of solar panels on people's yes. roofs and yeah. stuff. So. That's a, a large subject area. But yeah, we could do a whole pot on that, Greg. But yeah. anyway, yes. But yeah, let's let's do that. I'd say the key thing is government leadership, and of course there are government agencies like the um, Energy Market Marketing Energy Mechanism or Organisation, whatever it is that sets the rules, and the um, another organisation that monitors at the AEMC. Um, but along with state governments and the federal governments and the appropriate regulators and rule makers in the energy sector, there needs to be a clear understanding about um, where the renewable energy zones might be, that is yeah. where renewable energy generation can be developed, wind, solar, et cetera, what the retirement horizon for coal-fired electricity really looks like and therefore what transmission lines might be required to bring that renewable energy um, to the marketplace, where things are up to in terms of the potential for energy storage and in particular things like pumped hydro. That also requires government mm. guidance about 
planning um, and approvals. Um, so it's it lends itself again to another accord type discussion, if you like, if the government wants to attract private investment into those areas. It's interesting, I'll just pick up one thing you said, because the government uh, has been, shall we say, slightly ambiguous about <laughs> when coal might reach the end of its life. Now, for folks who don't know, Greg is a former climate minister, the climate minister who in fact legislated a carbon price before Tony Abbott repealed it. You know, the, the market operators of these coal-fired assets are sending signals to the market in terms of the life of their assets. But the government here, for political reasons, has been, I won't say artful because that sounds like they're misleading. I don't think they're doing that, but they haven't actually wanted to be that specific about when coal exits. But I think what you're saying is that the super industry will need that. Well, and, and it is being identified, Catherine. It's, it's not um, strictly a federal government responsibility um, no. So we've seen the Palaszczuk government fairly recently um, yes. put out a plan for transition out of coal. And, of course, they own quite a number of the coal-fired generators in Queensland, so they have that control. They're thinking about the timing for these things because it needs to be coherent and coordinated for people to make mm. investments that will replace that generation capability and investments in transmission and energy storage, you've got to know what the landscape looks like. And uh, so the Queensland market, I think, um, is becoming clearer. The Victorian uh, state election was an interesting, you know, outcome again mm. because the signal is very clear about the retirement of coal-fired generation capability. Um, the state government there, as you would have seen, one of their policy commitments was to get on with it themselves by by um, recreating the State Electricity Commission and yes. uh, driving a coordinated set of investments. I'm not sure the extent to which they'd be wanting to partner with the private sector, but they may, will be, when I say private sector, private investors like super funds. Mm. Um, but that was signalled when the Premier launched that policy. And so, you know, I think we're keen to engage to see what that might look like. So clarity in two major jurisdictions and in New South Wales as well, the Treasury here, Matt Keane, he's been very clear about his objectives to transition um, to renewables. They've established renewable energy zones. Right down the East Coast now, um, you've got state governments um, that have a lot of the regulatory control and responsibility um, who are keen to work together to achieve this transition in the energy sector and obviously a federal government that's keen to see it happen. So I think if I think now over the last 15 years or so, the conditions are the best they have ever been for us to mm. achieve that transition from coal-fired energy. One rider um, that's really important, you know, you observed, of course, my trade union um, background and obviously I'm a former Labor politician my whole working life's been about, you know, equity, justice and fair treatment for um, working people. What we are discussing will it, uh, involve, you know, significant adjustment and transition and the loss of jobs in coal-fired electricity, um, which are in regional areas of the country. And I think all of us, including governments, everyone who's going to be involved in this conversation this has got to be a top priority. How we mm. um, deal with people, 
um, are respectful of them, what this means for them uh, in generating new employment opportunities, being sensitive to regional development needs is, is a really important priority. It certainly is for me and the investors that, that um, I represent. And having said that, I think there's great opportunity here. When you think about the transition to renewables, and we can be a renewable energy superpower in this country if we're smart about it, um, a lot of the employment benefits should be driven in regional areas. And we mm. can do things like transition energy-intensive businesses like aluminium smelting to renewables and storage. We've got to figure it out with those companies, drive the investment to bring it about, but it can be done. We can protect jobs and we can create jobs at the same time. And I don't like having this conversation about energy transition and decarbonisation without covering that issue as well. It's the, it's the corollary to it and a really important part of the equation. Okay. Sadly, we're, we're close to time, so I'll just ask you one thing. Uh, what advice have you got for your, you know, some of them are former colleagues that you worked with closely, obviously, in the Rudd and Gillard governments. You've got, uh, uh, you know, Chris Bowen in your old portfolio standing, you know, sort of at the gates of the same transition that you tried to execute close to a decade mm. ago. What advice have you got for him in managing what's ahead? I would hesitate <laughs> to give Chris advice. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on. No, I, I know him obviously very well and have huge regard for him and his capability and he's stepping out, I think, the safeguard mechanism you know, in a very intelligent way, as you would expect. The rubber's yet to hit the road, I think, um, with the emissions-intensive mm. facilities that will be covered by the safeguard mechanism. And I've no doubt he's cognizant of this and very mindful of it, and so I don't offer it in the form of advice at all, but um, the engagement with those businesses and their workers and related stakeholders and thinking about the adjustment that's going to be occurring, particularly through in the near term to 2030 to achieve those interim emission reductions targets, they're, they're significant. And, mm. and uh, so engaging widely and, and speaking openly, I think, with uh, people who are going to be impacted by it and, and talking it through with the businesses uh, is really important. But Chris knows all of that. Mm. And uh, it takes a lot of energy. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I, I really thought you'd say buy a crash helmet. But anyway, you've just <laughs> said um, talk to people, which is, you know, which is. The, the circumstances are really different than when I was minister. I mean, it was inconceivable um, just 10 or 11 years ago when I was doing that carbon pricing mechanism that companies would be committing to net zero. And yet. Mm. Lots of these facilities covered by the safeguard industry and the fossil fuel sector in particular. But a decade on, a lot has been achieved and the um, the Paris Agreement helps make this policy pathway, I think, much easier. 
Mm, well, let's, let's hope so, given it's a transformation that we need to execute. Thank you, Greg, for your time. I really appreciate it. I hope you guys have uh, enjoyed listening to that conversation. As you can see, this is an agenda that is going to roll out in increments. It does involve uh, your money, listeners, uh, and your country. So um, I think it's, it's useful to sort of have these conversations so people understand the dynamics and, and what's in play. Thank you for your time, Greg. I appreciate it. Thank you to you guys for listening. Thank you to Alison Chan, who's producing this week, and thank you to Molly Glassy, who's the EP of the show. We'll see you soon. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the new Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Albert's, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24.